Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Today we are learning and thinking about Luke chapter 7, 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is who is, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thank you very much, Lou. Um, good morning, Stockwell. It's so great to be with you guys. Two weeks in a row. I feel so blessed. Um, for those who I haven't met before, my name is Natalie, and I'm one of the leaders here at Christchurch London. I want to say congratulations to all the parents um, who had their children dedicated today. They all look so cute. And I want you to enjoy this time, because as a youth leader, I know about the terrible twos. I also know about the terrible tens. Yes, it happens twice. Raising kids in Generation Z, it's a lot, it's a lot. (laughs) But um, I'm really excited to celebrate with you guys. Not only that, but actually tomorrow marks six months since I started working for the church. Um, Very significant milestone. Uh, It's gone so quickly, but yeah, I still think that's quite a significant period of time. I mean, that's longer than most relationships off Love Island, let's be honest. Um, But it's been such a great journey of faith so far, and I look forward to um, serving for many more years to come. So um, for those who are new, we've been looking at a series called The Inward Journey, 
Um, and this series is all about how key challenges in our lives can sometimes shape our thought patterns, our behaviours and our perspectives away from a full life that God has intended for us to have. Um, and when I was first told about the series, I thought about a story um, called Juneteenth. Does anybody know about Juneteenth? Heard of that before? Um, so it actually only became uh, a national holiday in the US last year, but it's been unofficially celebrated by African-Americans for over 150 years. Um, and here's why. So in 1863, during the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, the president at the time, he signed what is known as the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and that basically declared the abolition of slavery and the freedom of over three million African-American slaves. Amazing. However, it wasn't, only, it wasn't until the 19th of June in 1865, two years later, that slaves in Texas were finally told by Union soldiers that they were free. So for two years, they lived and worked in bondage, not knowing that they were actually free all along. Now, I think that that story is an analogy for many of us because we can keep ourselves bound under mindsets that can leave us anxious, afraid and exhausted. But God wants us to know of our freedom, that we can be free from those things and we can thrive and flourish as his children. Amen. Um, so today's talk is all about forgiveness, namely God's forgiveness for us. And we're looking at the story of Jesus who's having dinner at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Some of you may have heard about Pharisees. They were a Jewish sect who were known for being experts in the religious law and high um, standing and respected members of society. And whilst Jesus is there having dinner, there's a woman that's described as having lived a sinful life. And she comes to the house and she performs an act of worship. She anoints Jesus' feet with perfume. She wets them with her tears and she wipes them with her hair. Now, Simon isn't impressed with this at all. He says, well, if Jesus really were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. So what kind of woman is she exactly? Well, Simon refers to her as a sinner. And Luke says that she's lived a sinful life. But what does that mean, to live a sinful life? What does it mean to be a, a sinner? The word sin um, probably conjures up a whole host of ideas. It's not really a word that we use often today. And when we do, it's often controversial for several reasons. And you might have different images in your mind. Maybe you're thinking about, you know, the old story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where they're about to take a bite out of some forbidden fruit, or maybe a long list of like spiritual crimes that you're supposed to avoid in life. Or maybe it's indulging in one too many burgers at the family barbecue. I think we're all guilty of that sin. <laughs> so... What does it actually mean? Because it's used quite a lot in the Bible. Even if it's not used a lot today, we see it a lot in the Bible. So it's important to understand what it means. Now, whilst we might think that sin is all about a list of do's and don'ts, like don't do this, um, try and avoid doing that, the Bible's definition of sin is actually much more holistic than that. 
Because when it's translated from the Hebrew, the word for sin in the Bible literally means missing the mark or missing the target. So then what is the target that we're supposedly missing? Well, in Matthew 22 in the Bible, um, the Pharisees asked Jesus a question. They asked him, what's the most important commandment? And he told them, that it was to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. And secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said that all of the Old Testament teachings, that's the law and the prophets, they hang on these two commandments. So that's the target. As people, we're supposed to love God with all of our being and we're supposed to love others as ourselves. However, Whilst we might try hard to do this, we so often fail. I don't think anyone can disagree with that, that we so often fail and instead choose ourselves over God and over others. And the fact is, even if you're slightly off target, it still means you're off target. You haven't reached it. It doesn't matter how hard you try to be on target. Once you've missed the target, that's it. It doesn't count. And so that's actually what sin is. It's our failure to miss that target of God's standard for our lives. So looking at sin in this way means that we have to accept that we've all sinned in some way. So then why has Luke described this woman as being particularly sinful? It doesn't seem fair, does it? If we're, if we're all guilty, then why is she classed as the sinner? Why is she classed as having lived a sinful life? Well, I would like to suggest that Luke, he wants us to understand the life that's being experienced by this woman because of what she's been labelled as, as a sinner. You see, to be deemed as a sinner in the Jewish community would likely mean isolation on several levels, from friends and family, possibly being unable to work for a living, and then barred from the Jewish temple, which at that time would have been the spiritual and social hub for Jews. So to not be there, to not be part of that, would be incredibly damning to you. This woman would have been an outcast, cut off, cut off sorry, from the rest of society and living in the shadows. And that makes her decision to come and find Jesus actually a very bold move. But then even then... Notice in the scripture, as she's crying, she stands behind him. She can't even face him. Now, I'm going to share a confession with you guys. Um, and we just show the next slide. This is a picture of me at school. And I want you to focus on this picture and how cute I look in it. So that when I tell you the atrocities that I committed, <laughs> you, you, you'll feel sorry for me. You'll be like, oh, but I just can't imagine that she would do that. Um, but growing up, like many of us probably, um, you might have experienced some form of being teased or being picked on. And I was picked on a lot at school. Um, there were kind of a few things that maybe they made me an easy target because I was a PK. Anybody know what PK is? Pastor's kid, that's right. I was a pastor's kid. My dad was the pastor of our church. And um, at that time, that wasn't particularly cool with anybody at school. Um, and also, uh, I was a bit of a boffin. I did well at school and people thought I was a teacher's pet. So naturally, I was going to get teased by most of the class. But I wasn't the only one that got teased. There was another girl, and um, we'll call her Priya for the purposes of this story. And she moved 
to the UK from South Asia. And a lot of kids used to pick on her as well. Um, and instead of thinking, you know what, I'm just going to display God's love and kindness to this girl. I thought, well, maybe if I join the other kids in teasing her, then they'll stop picking on me and I'd rather be part of the crowd. So I decided that I was going to play a prank on this girl. Um, so most of us in our year group, we were about to join the local secondary school and they were hosting a welcome day for all the new students where you could come and meet each other. And so for whatever reason, I thought it'd be a good idea to give Priya the wrong day for the welcome day. And so poor Priya turned up to this secondary school that was closed with no one there while the rest of us turned up the next day to the welcome day and got to hang out with each other. So when we eventually returned for our first official day of school, um, lots of the students asked Priya, why weren't you at the welcome day? And then she said, oh, well, I thought it was X date because Natalie told me it was. And so it didn't take long for them to figure out that Natalie obviously gave Priya the wrong day. Um, and I thought, okay, well, you know what? This is it. Like this is, this prank went off excellently. I'm going to be so cool. Everyone's going to think I'm amazing. Not what happened. <laughs> Instead, I was shunned by my entire year group. Students avoided working with me in class where they could. And I just sat alone in the play playground at lunchtimes. I feel like in schools, there's like a, a universal bench where you sit, where you have no friends. And I basically sat on that bench. I bought some cushions for it, you know, tried to make myself at home. Um, yeah, I basically... Did not go as I had planned it at all. Um, and eventually, Priya accepted my rather tearful apology. <laughs> and all the classmates forgot about what happened and they, they moved on. But to be honest, for some time, I still carried that sort of guilty feeling about what happened. I still couldn't really let go the fact that I had done this and the way that I was made to feel. And it was so ironic because all those kids previously had been picking on us both, but they decided, no, Nat, you've gone too far. Like you've crossed the line. So we're all gonna agree that it's not okay. Um, and often when we deal with like feelings of guilt and shame and condemnation, big words there, like it's a battle on two fronts. Like on one side, we face the world's judgment of our actions based on the lines that they choose to draw about what is acceptable and what isn't. And this in turn fuels the other side. It's our thoughts and our emotions that tell us we can never be redeemed. We like to think that our generation is the most tolerant and the most accepting and the most forgiving of people. However, we also fail to admit that our generation is also the one that made the term cancel culture a household phrase. <laughs> you see, you can take one wrong step and then you can be cut off from society forever. In fact, yesterday, someone told me that the term is now referred to as being in a social jail. Um, and I think that's probably quite accurate. Um, now, does anybody remember a woman called Justine Sacco? Anybody? It's quite a while back. Yeah, it's almost, oh, someone's like, I remember. It's almost 10 years ago. Okay. When Justine Sacco 
um, took a plane to South Africa. And before she took off, she decided to post this tweet. Going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. Oh, Justine, Justine. Justine needed to travel with a friend who would just be like, Justine, you know what? No. <laughs> okay, so Justine now takes off in this plane. This is at a time, this is like 2013, so Wi-Fi on planes were not that like big of a thing. Um, so she's in the bubble. Meanwhile, Twitter is popping off, okay? So someone finds this um, tweet, a journalist, and he starts sending it to his journalist friends. People start write writing articles about it. Um, it becomes viral. Naturally, people are outraged by this tweet. Um, someone then decides to try and find Justine's flight online and so they managed to find the flight that she's on and now everyone's tracking to see when she lands there's a hashtag has Justine landed yet like the world is waiting to see what happens to Justine eventually 11 hours later Justine arrives in South Africa she opens her phone and she sees that she gets a tweet from somebody she went to secondary school with that says I'm so sorry this is happening to you. Um, and then her phone explodes. <laughs> Just, not literally, <laughs> but with hundreds of messages and retweets and a message from her employer that says she's fired. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, there's another tweet which I think just sums up um, everything that happened in that moment. I remember when you could be utterly stupid without the whole world finding out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and a year on, Justine describes how her life is still in seclusion, even after publicly apologizing for what she claimed was a very poor attempt at satire. Um, she says, it was incredibly traumatic. You don't sleep. You wake up in the middle of the night, forgetting where you are. All of a sudden, you don't know what you're supposed to do. You've got no schedule, you've got no purpose. I'm 30 years old, I had a great career. If I don't have a plan, if I don't start making steps to reclaim my identity and remind myself of who I am on a daily basis, then I might lose myself. I'm single, so it's not like I can date because we Google everyone we might date. So that's been taken away from me too. How am I going to meet people? What are they going to think of me? Now, I'm not trying to excuse or make light of what Justine said, um, but it is clear from this story that our culture combined with the social media age, it creates this toxic environment where people either live in constant shame for their past mistakes or in constant fear of getting it wrong. And both these things not only take a massive toll on how we think about ourselves, but it also takes a toll on how we think about God. Because if our perception of God is heavily shaped on how other people treat us on earth, then we start to believe that God's drawn a line. We start to believe that there's a line you can cross. You can only go so far and then God's love can't reach you. God is love, but... God's love doesn't go that far. Like God forgives, but he can't forgive you for that thing. And we expect Jesus to react like Simon the Pharisee. If only you knew who that person was. Or maybe some of us are saying that to ourselves. If only you knew God. 
the things that I've done in the past. If only you knew the hurt that I've caused. You wouldn't want anything to do with me. You wouldn't want to speak with me. You wouldn't want to have a relationship with me because no one can forgive that. However, Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he shares a parable. Trust Jesus to like share a parable in in this situation. (laughs) Uh, He shares a parable about two people who borrow money from a lender. Now, one owes 50 denarii, which in today's time would be about 1,800 pounds, while the other owed 500 denarii. So that's 1,800 pounds times 10. Um, And Jesus asks an obvious question. Well, if both people had their debts written off, who would love the lender more? I mean, that's quite bold because if the student loans company wrote my debt off, like I'd be grateful, but I don't know if I'd love them like that. (laughs) But anyway, Simon answers correctly. He says, it's going to be the one with the greater debt who would show the most love. How about we use an example from today? So a few years ago, BBC aired um, a drama. It was a dramatised reenactment of the story of Jerome Rogers. He was a 19-year-old boy who lived on a council estate and he got his first job working as a motorcycle career on a zero-hours contract. Yeah, it already sounds bad, doesn't it? Um, He soon realises that working on a zero-hours contract in the gig economy is a very, very um, unstable job. And sometimes he only earns 20 pounds a week due to the nature of how many fees he has to pay back the company for the pleasure of working for them in the first place. Um, And then he occurs two 65 pound traffic fines for riding in a bus lane. And his lack of proper income means that he's unable to pay the fines. So then they get passed on to a debt management company. And Jerome is completely overwhelmed. Like, this is his first job. He doesn't have experiences or finances. Um, He starts to get really stressed and really anxious about what's going on. Um, And... Then they pass it on to a payment plan to see if he can pay the fine. But obviously, at this point, it's coming up to like 500, 600 pounds. He's not getting enough money to to even pay what's on the payment plan. Um, Eventually, the fine increases to well over a thousand pounds. And bailiffs turn up at his door and clamp his bike. The only thing that he's using, essentially, um, to try and earn a living. And sadly, shortly after that, Jerome took his own life. And this is an incredibly heartbreaking story of a young man who couldn't see any way out of his financial troubles. Now imagine that Jerome is sitting at home one evening, wading through paperwork, tears pouring down his face, not knowing what to do. Imagine his phone rings and it's the debt collecting agency. Imagine they tell Jerome that thanks to an anonymous donor, his £1,000 or more debt has been wiped clean. No more letters, no more bailiffs. How different that story would have been. How different the outcome. Just the euphoria and the gratitude that Jerome would have expressed in that moment would have been a sight to see. 
Now, the fact is, if we replace Jerome in that story with Elon Musk, for example, we, he wouldn't have the same reaction, would he? Because at the end of the day, he knows that he's got enough money in the bank to cover a minor debt like that. In, in many ways, that's not even a debt. But Jesus' parable isn't about financial debt, is it? It's about sin. And this is where Jesus starts to play a game of spot the difference with Simon the Pharisee. So what's the same about Simon and the woman in this story? Well, they both owed debts that they were unable to repay. Because metaphorically, sin is like a spiritual debt owed to God as a result of our broken nature to choose ourselves over him. But the key differences between Simon and the woman is that one, Simon is aware, the woman sorry, is aware of her sin while Simon is not. And two, the woman is aware of her saviour while Simon is not. The woman's aware of her sin. People like Simon clearly point it out to her all the time. And her posture towards Jesus shows this as well. She doesn't act like Simon, who is proud enough to question whether Jesus is really a prophet. Jesus points out Simon's sin of omission. He says, you know, I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I've entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Jesus points out Simon's sin of omission, addressing Simon's lack of welcome and hospitality to Jesus. But what Jesus is also really pointing out is Simon's internal sin of pride and self-righteousness that prevents him from honouring Jesus as he should. And so we see from the parable that the amount of each debt doesn't actually represent the amount of sin in each person. Sin doesn't work that way. It's not like everyone's carrying this jar of marbles and, oh, some people have just a few marbles in the jar and some people it's just overflowing. That's not how it works because we all miss the mark. We all fall short of God's standard. But Jesus is saying that the amount of each debt represents the awareness of that person's need for God's forgiveness. If you owe a little amount, you're vaguely aware that you owe something. Like if you owe someone a fiver, you're vaguely, oh yeah, I owe you a fiver, cool, cool. Um, but if you owe a lot of money, then you, you carry that thought with you everywhere. You think, oh, I, I need to really deal with that. Like, I can't rest until I've managed to just wipe that clean. And that brings us to the second point. This woman is aware of her saviour, while Simon is not. You see, Simon is like Elon Musk in this story. He believes that he has enough money in the bank to easily write off his debt. Like, surely I've done enough to prove myself. Surely I have good morals. I'm a decent person. I'm not like this woman who everyone knows has been up to no good. Like, I'm not perfect, but I'm a good person. At least I'm not like her. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because that's something that we like to do. We have a natural tendency to try and justify ourselves. We don't like the idea that we need forgiveness, that we need mercy from God. But tell me something, if you owe a debt to a perfect and righteous and holy God, the creator of the universe, does he take cash or check? <laughs> when it comes to our sin debt, we have to accept 
how spiritually bankrupt we are, that we need the lender to write off what we owe. When Jesus asked Simon, do you see this woman? He's not just saying, do you physically see her? Do you see what she's doing? But he's realizing that Simon is spiritually blind to what Jesus is offering both of them. And that's freedom from guilt, freedom from shame and condemnation that sin burdens us with. Freedom from having to try and prove ourselves. We're trying to rack up good deeds to somehow make us feel like we're worthy. But this woman, she's not blind. She knows exactly who Jesus is. And she approaches him not from a place of despair. She's not crying because she's hopeless. She's crying from a place of faith because she knows who Jesus is and that he's the only one who can forgive her sins. And so she responds to him in worship. Jesus says that because of her actions, her many sins have been forgiven. But then the other guests aren't so sure what to make of this. They're like, who is this who can even forgive sins? And there's another place in scripture where something similar is asked. And it's a couple chapters before in Luke 5, where Jesus heals a paralyzed man. Everyone kind of know that story? This guy who is paralyzed and his friends bring him. They can't get into the room. And so they're like, oh, you know what? We're going to go on the ceiling and we're going to lower him down. What great friends. I hope my friends would do that for me. Um, And so they lower him towards Jesus. And everyone expecting Jesus to heal him because that's what Jesus has been doing. He's been healed all sorts of people but instead Jesus says your sins are forgiven and then the crowd are like astonished they're like who is this man only God can forgive sins like they accuse him of blasphemy but then Jesus doesn't bat an eyelid to this he doesn't even like respond directly he just asks another question and says what is easy to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk Because of course, Jesus can heal this man and eventually he does and he he walks. But what Jesus is trying to point out is that there's a deeper human need. Our need to receive forgiveness from God himself. That is the harder thing to, to receive. That is the harder thing to seek for and actually find. And in that story in our passage today, Jesus displays himself as our saviour, who has both the authority and the willingness to forgive us which in turn frees us from any guilt, any shame and condemnation that tries to keep us bound. That's what makes Jesus so awesome. (laughs) Now, we're coming into land now, so I want to finish with some application. What can we take away from this and apply to our lives? How can we know the freedom of God's forgiveness? Well, first, we have to acknowledge the sin in our lives. We have to recognize that we've truly fallen short of God's standard. We have missed the mark by choosing to follow ourselves rather than his good and perfect will for us. Saying this, though, I want us to understand that there's a difference between condemnation and conviction. Because you might say, well, if I acknowledge my sin, then I'm just acknowledging you know, I'm trying to say that I'm, I'm not a good person. I'm trying to say that I'm not worthy. And that's just going to pile on me even more burden and and guilt and shame what's the purpose of that well I would say that's condemnation condemnation ultimately keeps us away from God it says I've gone too far I've crossed the point of no return and there's no way that God can forgive me and there have been many times personally where when I've messed up when I failed God that I keep away 
that that's my response. I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't really pray how I want to. And I can't really read the Bible. And I can't really come into community with other Christians because I know that I've done this thing and I can't approach God with that. And it's so ironic because like God sees everything. So I act like, oh yeah, I can't tell God this happened. And it's like, but God already knew. <laughs> but yet we still act as though, no, I just, I just can't approach him in that way. And I believe that really breaks God's heart because that's not his purpose for us. That's not what he wants. He's not this tyrant that's just waiting for us to mess up to be like, see, I told you that was going to happen. That, but that's what condemnation is. And it's, it's not what God is. Con conviction, however, is different because conviction comes from God's Holy Spirit when he speaks to your heart. And as a Christian, he reminds you of who you are, that you're a new creation in Christ. When he says, that's not the life you live anymore. We don't live separately. We have a relationship now. There's something better for you out there. There's a better choice that you can make. That's what conviction does. And that conviction is supposed to turn you towards God, towards the cross, towards the person that has the power to either eternally condemn and forgive, and yet he chooses to forgive every time. And that's why Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's the second point. We have to accept that Jesus is the only one with the power to forgive us. Um, some of us from the Myland service, we like to go out on a Saturday and we go around and we try and talk to people just about church, about faith, etc. And we have like a small card um, which has like some reference points. And I really like the last line where it says, whenever you sin, don't run away from God, but run towards him. Because only Jesus has the power to forgive us of our sins. Only he was righteous enough to give his life as a perfect sacrifice. And he did that for us. So don't be like Simon and just carry this burden of trying to do lots of kind deeds or karma or just trying to be a good person. Accept that Jesus has done it. It's finished. Accept him as your savior, the only one who can wipe that sin debt away. And the final point, and this is probably the hardest thing actually, because we can so easily just come to church and hear talks like this and be like, wow, that was amazing. God loves me. He forgave me. Amen. And then we go into life and then something happens and then we just totally forget all of it. And then we condemn ourselves again. And then we say, oh, God can't forgive me for that. I've just gone too far. But we have to believe that we've been forgiven. This head knowledge has to become heart knowledge. Because if it doesn't, we're just going to allow external sources. We're going to allow what people think and say in the world and what they perceive to be as, as righteous, what the grand jury perceives to be as, as the right way of living. We're going to let that shame us and make us feel like we can't come back. But God's word doesn't say that. It says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God says that in him, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And finally, God says that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. These are just a few verses 
in a plethora of verses that speak of how much God loves us and has forgiven us. So I hope that what you can take away this morning is just the freedom that we have been forgiven. And I don't know where lots of people are. Maybe it's the first time you've come to church. Maybe you wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian. But I want to share with you that God loves you. He loves you so much. He desires to have a relationship with you. He's not here to try and condemn you. He's not here to try and tell you all the things you've done wrong and why you'll never be like him. Instead, he's here to say, just as you are, I embrace you. Just as you are, I welcome you. I've dealt with the sin problem. I've dealt with the brokenness on the cross. I've dealt with the shame. Just come and receive the gift that he's willing to give. So I'm just going to invite the band back up. Um, and we're just going to sing a song in response of that, talking about how God accepts us just as we are, and he embraces us with his love and forgiveness. Amen.